Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 472. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcasts.com. So this week's interview is with my friend Sophie Wade. Sophie's a work futurist, an international keynote speaker. She's a popular online instructor on LinkedIn Learning and is also an author whose latest book is Empathy Works, The Key to Competitive Advantage in the New Era of Work, published by Page Two. In this conversation with Sophie, we discuss the role of empathy at work, how to have a human-centric approach and leading the younger generations. We also chat about her work, including her experience as an instructor on LinkedIn Learning, on the future of work, Gen Z, and empathy. You'll find all the show notes on imintodile.com. Please consider to drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Hey, Sophie Wade, <laughs> the Sophie Wade. <laughs> Great to have you on the show. In your own words, Sophie, you and I have known each other a long time. I'd love to hear how you'd like to describe yourself. Ooh, it's too early in the morning to do that. How would I describe myself? Um, passionate, um, a little odd. Uh, I like to think of myself as kind of fun, uh, high energy, I think, probably. That certainly fits the Sophie that I know. <laughs> yeah, I have, a, I have a positive outlook on life. Um, I, call, I think of myself as being an optimistic realist. That makes sense. It certainly try, does to me. And I try to be empathetic. I'm trying. I'm learning all the time. Not always succeeding, that's for sure, yeah. but trying. Well, we're going to get into that. I want to dig in a little bit on the, how did Sophie get to where she is? So um, obviously, I, I, I've kind of known you since the 1990s. We went to business school together, um, but you had a life before and a life after. Um, you, you studied Chinese, and uh, I'd love to find out what that added to your life to have learned Chinese. Uh, well, actually, I didn't have any life pre-knowing you, Minta. It was, it was only life post-Minta. Right, right. <laughs> no. um, so... The China, studying Chinese was very interesting and 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 life changing in many ways for me. Um, I had studied science at high school, my A levels, and didn't want to do that at university. So I, in England, you can't really do as I think you know. Um, you don't have a great range of options. So the race, so I could do law or something uh, weird, and so I went for the sort of more eclectic, interesting. And I'll, you know, if I really hate it, I can change when I get there. And that ended up being uh, such a game changer. One, because I'd studied other languages before. Um, I'd done French and, and, and Russian. And Chinese is a very, very different type of language because it's very visual as well as being um, oral. And it's, you know, there are pictograms and they sort of tell a history too. For example, the radicals that are do with money have the, the little cowrie shell radical on the left-hand side because cowries used to be the money. So there was, that was a sort of fun aspect to it. But more than anything, it caused me to go and be living in countries which were very, very different to my own. I, as part of my course, I, was in, I lived in Taiwan for six months. And the culture there is so different um, that it, I really had to rethink and, and understand that what I knew was not how it was, it was just what I knew. And that really changed my perspective about my country, about how I looked at other countries, saw the similarities between say the, the Chinese and the Italians, the, the focus on, on food and, and the sort of family gatherings. And, and so, you know, in some in some ways, our like English and French are very similar, very very, and also very very different. And there are other ways that the English and the Chinese are you know, similar in some ways and extraordinarily different in others. And also how the language is very incompatible culturally. Um, for example, if you write a, a contract, it is unlucky 
to be foreseeing any problems <laughs> in, a, in a Chinese contract, which obviously can lead to challenges. Um, so there were, it was hugely uh, interesting for me from an intellectual point of view, but also a very practical point of view in terms of understanding the world. Well, the world. Fabulous. And then um, I couldn't help but notice that you played ice hockey and lacrosse. <laughs> Two of my favorite sports that I never played. Um, I, I, I have my roommate at Yale was captain of the hockey team and had been the freshman of the year, Ivy League freshman of the year at, in lacrosse. Mm. And uh, a great friend of mine, Charlie, played lacrosse and ice hockey. It seems to be they go hand in hand, so to speak. Um, you were captain of the team. Uh, of course, you know, people can't see you, but you're not exactly a goon. Uh, look at <laughs> physically. Uh, tell us what ice hockey and lacrosse brought to your life. So lacrosse, I played um, at uh, sort of the equivalent of middle school and high school um, in in England, and loved it. Uh, really, really loved it. But it, it, I was playing the English women's game, which is which is I think they still play with wooden sticks. Very different game. Yeah. You can't poke check. You can't do all the things you can do in men's U.S. lacrosse, which is a I think is a sort of much more fun, uh, fast moving game. But I really did play. It's great. It's a great team sport um, and a, a lot of fun. And, and my daughter's um, pick, take, taking it up and enjoying it, too. Um, and I actually played it for a little bit. But ice hockey, I took up at college when I got to, to university and uh, had so much fun with it. All of the team actually um, at Oxford were on the men's team were Rhodes Scholars. They were these very quiet, mannered, very sweet Canadian, almost all Canadian Rhodes Scholars. And they, but they were crazy on the ice. <laughs> and I was like, oh, but it was something that I came into by chance. A friend of mine had seen some ice hockey when she was away skiing somewhere and said it was amazing sport. And I was like, oh, it's just an excuse for, for, for violence. I can't believe that. I, you know, how could, and she's like the sweetest person on the planet. And then she was busy one night because we actually went, we both went to the same university. And uh, so I, I, I thought, okay, it's late at night and the, the women were only allowed to practice very late. Uh, well, we started to practice uh, at midnight. So I went along. After the and- <laughs> After, after, after the men, after everything. So we got there at uh, midnight and I just thought it was the best sport ever. So much fun. And I, I did bulk up. I will say I bulked up a lot because um, I got pretty fast. Um, but it was, it's a very, it's very hard to hurt yourself. You move very fast. Um, and we were playing semi-contact. We weren't playing full contact, uh, but it was, it, it was a very, uh, one of the best uh, parts of my university experience, actually. <laughs> and what made it so good? What was it that really pulled it out? Um, you play, you're playing fast and very intensively. You, uh, it, there was also a strong camaraderie because we were, we were, you know, playing at midnight. That was our practice time, midnight till 1 a.m. It's the only time that the women's got the ice. Um, so it really sort of brought us together. And uh, we... I, I, we, you know, there weren't that many teams in England at the time. And so you really felt that you were, uh, you know, you, you, so we were, had to, to drive maybe, to, you know, two hours or something to a game. Um, and, it, you know, we were really putting a lot of, of time and effort and energy into it. And it's, it's you know, it's pretty intense. Um, you know, you are, you are, it's a you know, pretty physical sport for, for women. And, uh, and just the fact that you can sort of throw yourself on the ground and pick yourself up. And, and we actually did have some, some guys who were cheerleaders for us when we had home games. So that was fun too. Yes. Uh, it was, uh, also <clears throat> we had, we couldn't really afford the gear. So I had men's old men's gear, smelly have, old men's gear. I, I have to say that that was, it was smelly when it was just in the bag, but when you put it on and then it heated up because you sort of activated with there was pretty much nothing as as unpleasant as well, you must have been very that. scary coming down the ice I, <laughs> or afterwards and and so i think that was that was sort of part of the camaraderie that we were you know totally stinky in. um but it was just it was just a very very quite an extreme sport i i really enjoyed well, well, the way I interpret what you're saying, Sophie, I mean, obviously I know quite, I mean, I have a great uh, admiration for and 
and certainly a knowledge of the game. I've only played maybe 10 games myself, but is um, it's that intensity uh, and yet the down to earthness. You know, that mm. you're able to don some secondhand smelly men's clothes <laughs> is says a lot, you know, as opposed to, you know, sticking your nose up at, at it. And then the intensity of going out at midnight and, and that kind of deep seated passion for the game pulls you together at a different yeah. level than we're used to. Well, I love that. So let me let's more, more, more prosaically um, talking about LinkedIn, you're a learning instructor. I was De, you know, delighted to see that. And obviously you're doing well at being a LinkedIn learning instructor. Tell us your journey to becoming a LinkedIn instructor. and What do you teach on LinkedIn? Uh, thank you. Well, I actually met two milestones this weekend just passed. For my latest one, which is on the future of work skills, I just passed the 10,000 learner mark, which was great because I was released very recently. Um, but for my the best one that I have, which is empathy for sales professionals, it actually just reached the 400,000 learner mark. So I was very excited about that. Um, so I was introduced to LinkedIn by somebody who's been an instructor for a long time, Gary A. Bowles, who is the chair of the future of, uni of work at Singularity University. Super, super, super guy, just phenomenal um, intellectual and, and incredible understanding about the future of work and where it's going and the great reset. Loved it. Anyway, he introduced me because he thought, you know, LinkedIn could could benefit from some of the stuff that I know and talking about empathy. And it's so it, it's a, a really interesting journey because LinkedIn really helps you understand how to to put a course together, how to, to frame it and the, the formula that they have that they, they have found to be successful. And started off with actually it started off with um, Gen Z, a focus on Gen Z. But since then, I've um, did two two um, courses focused on empathy, one for empathy for sales professionals, the other one for HR professionals. And the Empathy for Sales Professionals launched on March 14th, 2020. So it could not have been better timed for helping people deal with the enormous challenges of trying to, to navigate uh, selling during a pandemic um, and, and the, the really challenging situations that they were they were sort of confronting themselves and how to, you know, connect with somebody and how to approach them or, or and you know back off or pause or or how to speak with somebody who's going through who knows what on the other side um, of the phone or the Zoom call. So that was uh, you know very sort of timed that to really help people. So I think that's why that one has been so successful. But it's been very interesting to me to understand you know, how, how to communicate the different points, how many points you can or can get across um, effectively in a, in a short video, in a three-minute video. Um, and uh, so that's been a, a wonderful to be able to, 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 share, to share some of the, the knowledge in the way that, that, um, that sort of lands and is, and is useful to people that I can be reaching around the world. So I've never taken a course on LinkedIn I mean, I've seen that it exists, but mm -hmm. so you, it sounds like there's a pre-recorded video. What does actually a session look like? And 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 then just from a business model standpoint, are you getting paid per the learner or for a number of time? How does you know globally speaking, what does it look like? Right. So um, it's basically they're all an hour long, and then divided into sixteen, fifteen to seventeen uh, videos of up to three and a half minutes each. So it's very, um, you know, it's, this is sort of introduction um, and, and then a series of videos that you can take one by take one. By one. Um, and then you get a certificate at the end um, so that that can actually sort of show. So a lot of LinkedIn are sort of selling the video views to often large organizations, but right now this month, um, it's in, in April, they, they have been um, opening it up to, to show other people, you know, how you can use it for learning and development for your organizations. But they have videos about everything under the sun. I mean, mine happened to be about empathy and about focus on the workplace, but they could be technical skills or marketing or, or how to write a speech or, I mean, you know, how to do a good newsletter. I mean, there are extraordinary number that you can either um, buy on a you know, piece by piece basis or your, your organization can get, I think it's based on, you know, num X number of thousands of views for, for, for their employees. Um, and, you know, so they, they pay you upfront um, an amount 
to to do it um, because it's a it's a good month worth of work to to sort of put the knowledge into a course sure. format. Um, and then uh, and then the sort of royalties based on how many people are viewing. I get a share of the royalties. Nice. Well, that's sweet. Love it. Um, so the book, Empathy Works. Uh, <laughs> Empathy Works, the key to competitive advantage in the new era of work, which you published using page two. It's mm -hmm. your second book, that's correct? It is indeed, yes. So writing a book is, well, has been for me always quite a process. And you were mentioning at the on the top about uh, the notion of being empathic at times, or, you know, trying to be whatever. What did you learn from writing your book? One of the things I learned about myself is why I'm the one why I found myself writing this book about empathy. And it was one, this journey that I'd had living in other countries, including in Taiwan and Hong Kong, and how that taught me to be empathic because in order to try and be successful and assimilate into a different country and culture and people that you really have to put yourself in their shoes because some, some of it's so different that you, you know, for example, in, in Asia, very, very strong about reincarnation, which changes how people think about, you know, a death and how they respond and react to it. And it can be so different to your own. You're like, well, hang on a sec, how are they thinking about this, which is different to how I am? So that was a, a strong sort of realization about uh, empathy. And the other was, you know, growing up, I have a very strong family and they, we are all strong personalities. And, you know, it's a question of there's a sort of balance of needs that I that I find that happen in all relationships. And that was one of the things that I sort of realized that empathy, because you can have empaths who are so empathic that they get bulldozed by everybody. And then you can have, you know, people who are more sometimes even narcissistic, you know, they're this sort of stream version. It's all about them and not about the other person's needs. And really empathy is being is being attuned i think when you sort of are acting based on the empathy and in a positive way you can, you can act on the, in a negative way but it is about trying to work out where that the the a, a good and appropriate or a, a mutually reinforcing balance of needs is in a conversation in a professional interaction or with family or friends or whatever so that was something that um that i realized over time from from growing up and throughout my life that that was something that that I was sort of working to get the balance right, um, and that that I learned that about myself for sure. You were working with Page Two, the lovely Trina White and folks. Yes. Um, tell us about your experience of choosing Page Two, and and how, as an author, you what is the what are the criteria that go into uh, the, the way you go to market? Because I mean, I've done four different versions, different ways, and. I'd love to find out what you think is is the you know the the criteria for choosing whether you go self or hybrid or full publisher. Um, yes, yeah, so Trina and folks, uh, Ronnie Gannon, who's who's my project manager, Trina's fantastic. They were actually introduced to me um, by AJ Harper, who. Uh, has helped who has introduced to me also by heroic public speaking so I do a lot of public speaking as I know you do um, and I have trained to do that I have done some courses with they call HPS heroic public speaking with uh, Michael Port and Amy Port and they are uh, phenomenal and it, that has been because a lot of people aren't that comfortable speaking or don't know how to perform rather than just sort of speak a presentation. And so I've, I've really put sort of a lot of effort and energy into learning that. And AJ actually helps me write, um, sort of craft my speeches, not the content, but how it was written, because I'm, I don't think of myself as a great writer uh, and I'm learning how to tell stories better and, and improving all the way um, as I go. And so AJ had known and had done, you know, a, a number of books or, or worked with a number of uh, authors on the speeches, but also on their writing. She She's um, co-written, I don't know, 10 books or something by now. And uh, so she introduced me to them. But I also had seen that um, a sort of friend, uh, acquaintance, um, Phil M. Jones, and also my, Michael Bengate Steiner um, had published with them. And Phil, who is 
an unbelievable machine uh, had done exactly what to uh, written done exactly what to say exactly uh, exactly what to say exactly how to say it um, a number of these things which he has been incredibly successful with and Michael had written a book about coaching and you and both had used page two and um, Phil had written a, a very long piece about why they were so good and how he'd been able to work with them in a very collaborative uh, and beneficial way and I was like okay that that really sums it up so I was very happy to to go with them and the decision to to the, what kind of publisher I did actually have some conversations with um, more traditional publishers not hybrid solutions but you have to have a very strong platform because basically you're going to do all the work. So you're either going to do the work um, and have sort of control or you're going to do all the work and have much less control and it take a longer, take a, be a much longer process. And the key, one of the key things for me was um, that I really wanted to get this out as soon as possible. Um, and so the time was a, was a, was a factor and, uh, and, and, just trying to be able to do it in the way that made most sense to me. They certainly know how to do things quickly, um, which is such a lovely thing. Mm. And they're still, they still have your back uh, the whole way, mm. along the way. That was my experience. So hats off to the page two group over there in uh, Seattle. Seattle or Vancouver? I can't remember. Vancouver, Vancouver. Vancouver, that's it. West Coast anyway. Um, so let's uh, talk about Empathy Works. So um one of my observations is that we tend to still have somewhat different ideas as to what is empathy and where does it end? So what is empathy mm. <laughs> and where does it end? Ah, well, I'm not going to debate, but I will say what how I define it and how, uh, because I think in the end, uh, however you define it, the most important thing is we do more of it. Um, and because there's, there's a sort of debates about, you know, what empathy is versus compassion. And there's definitely clear differences between empathy and sympathy. But, but for me, empathy is the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes and see how they see the world and feel how they're feeling and how they're experiencing it. So it's really about just putting yourself in somebody else's shoes and just, you know, understanding what their experience is and then doing something about it. Um, is is how there's so so there are many people, including myself, who think of it as three steps. So it's sort of think, feel, and then act as a result. So whether whether you put the acting piece on as to what you do about that um, into empathy or not, that's kind of I think where some of the difference lies with with people. But for me, it really is about what is called empathetic action. And so as you understand about the person more about them because of your, you're putting yourself into their shoes. What do you then do as a result? How do you act differently with that understanding and information? I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. Okay, right. So what part of that can we teach? All of it. Um, in Franz de Waal is a Dutch primatologist, and he, among others, um, says that it is... The Age of Empathy. Yes, exactly. Very, very interesting book. Um, so he has done extraordinary work in anthropology. Um and to do with empathy, you know, he really sees that it is second nature and something that is absolutely innate in every single human being. That said, we, not all human beings are as uh, skilled at it or practice it. And we certainly, for the most part, have not been using empathy in the workplace. You know, this is even this terrible phrase, it's not personal, it's business. Well, you know, I'm sorry, that doesn't really work. Um, so, so the fact is, we've you know we have 
been dealing in, in our, our sort of business interactions on a more transactional basis. And whilst, you know, some kind of transactional exchanges are, you know, make sense, that doesn't mean you can't have a relationship and be, be always be thoughtful about what the other person is thinking and how they're going to act and how they're going to understand it. Cause that just gives you more information and understanding about how to make this particular transaction work. But the more you can have a relationship with a person, the better that, that the easier it's going to be and the easier you're going to overcome any, you know, conflicts or challenges because you sort of connect and then you can sort of see each other's perspectives, you them, you theirs and they're yours. So, so it can it can really be learned in terms of the different steps to try and put yourself in someone else's shoes to sort of really try and understand how they see they see the world. And the second step is trying to connect with their experience, with their emotion, just as we, you know, when you're watching a movie or, or you know, your favorite sports team wins, you're like, yeah, oh, my God, you know, or you're, or, you know, you, you're, you're with the, in, in the romantic comedy or you're with the, you know, the, you know, you want to kill the guy, guys, and you want to, and, you know, that kind of rising emotion, that is where you're empathizing with the, the person in the movie or the, the, the character in the book, you know, that's where you're actually tapping into your own empathy in, in so many situations. And it's, it's sort of really leaning into that and, and, and remembering it and, and feeling it. Um, and then, and then just, you know, that's, then there's a very conscious decision to act based on that information. So that's sort of almost the easiest piece. Right. And I understand that is part of empathy is the action. Yes. For me, for me, I, there, there are many people who call that the em empathetic action. So there's cognitive empathy, which is putting yourself sort of like seeing the world from the other person's perspective, affective empathy, which is the um, connecting with their emotion, connecting with the experience that they're having, forgetting yours, not being sort of judgmental about how somebody else is thinking, but just connecting with their experience and their perspective. And then the third piece is empathetic action. And that's uh, moving forward based on using that information to generally have a more mutually beneficial result. There are certainly, um, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a fantastic salesperson, and she says she she knows some very um, manipulative, empathetic salespeople. Um, so it, it isn't necessarily always used for the most beneficial. I'm not saying that, that being um, an empathetic salesperson and manipulating it to get conversions is necessarily a bad thing, but she, the way she was phrasing it, she it wasn't particularly positive. But so it can be used, uh, you know, in in not not necessarily the the most the best of best ways. Um, so I was talking to Michael Ventura, who wrote a very interesting book called um really uh, called Applied Empathy, and we were talking about the ethics of empathy and and you know having an ethical approach to your practice, one's practice of empathy. And I think that's that's a very important point. I most certainly agree with that. Um, because I mean, I even think that before you even talk about ethics, you should have empathy. Mm. So empathy precedes the way you look at ethics. And, mm. and then you need ethics and ethical framework to establish just where you want to exercise empathy and, and think about then the steps that go towards where do we want to enact anything afterwards so because mm. you, you can as you say use empathy for for alternative means yeah and, and then it, you need to just lean back into your ethical framework to say well is this part of what we want to do or not is this say sale we want to do at all costs or not and that kind of thing but you might the question i have is a little bit more let's say insidious at some levels because it's it's looking at teaching versus learning and and as you were speaking you said well you can learn it but the, the challenge I have found is teaching it to someone who doesn't want to learn it. And, and so maybe look at those who are individuals who aren't quite as empathic, need to be more. What is it that gets them into this journey? Because the people who are empaths and empathically, you know, or, or you know, whether it's um, Michael or whomever, they know about empathy and the power of it. Mm -hmm. The challenge is getting to the people who are not being empathic, who, who, who shut down when it gets too fearful or, or they, they need to get the business in and then they, they kick in their amygdala and the empathy just shoots out the window. How, how do we get those types of individuals to come back into the fold, if you will, of empathics or em empaths? <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, well, I mean, various ways. So uh, I actually include in the book a, a story which happened um, at a conference I was speaking at, and I was it, I spoke to about I don't know 400, 500, um, mostly um, technologists. It was a big uh, software user conference, and at the end of a speech entirely about empathy um, and with a, with the focus on how to be ut utilizing empathy to have better relationships and better outcomes from teamwork. And this guy comes up to me at the end in rather a panic and he's like, but, but I have, I have like 10 direct reports. How could I possibly, you, you know, you know, connect with them at all emotionally. It would just be too much. I mean, he was really quite sort of traumatized at the, at the idea of it. And, you know, my response to him was, you don't have to connect with them emotionally, you know, every time or, or even, you know, start there. Just asking people about how they're doing and, and connecting about a family and trying to show that you care about what's going on with them. It can be as simple as that just to begin with. And, you know, each time sort of asking how they're doing and really listening to what's going on with them people want to be heard they want to be valued and it, so that's a just a small starting point without having to to really be sort of emotionally attuned to to what they're experiencing so for some people who for whom as this guy um it seems overwhelming to to, to to go through that sort of emotional experience particularly with tenure 10, 10 direct reports is a lot um that you just i just sort of said you know just start small um and for me the you know, I, I often don't even necessarily use the word empathy. I, I use, you know, human understanding because what I'm really talking about is just being able to understand the person that you're dealing with better, whether it's a prospect or an existing customer, it's one of your, you know, direct reports, it's your boss, you know, in any of those situations, when you can better understand what they're going through, how they're thinking about the situation, you are better informed. You are in a stronger position to have a better outcome because of how you understand, you know, how they see the world. And then when you can, you sort of, you have some, um, you can create some shared understanding and, co and common ground. You can sort of bring yourself, it's more easy to bring yourself around to the same side of the table, or at least show that there are areas where you both have the same, you're on the same page, even not about a particular issue and you can have better outcomes so for me it's really trying to communicate how empathy is you know it makes it easier to lead it makes it easier to easier to manage your 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 teams it's it's easier to deal with your 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 team members it makes it easier for you to when you can can have these better and more you know productive outcomes um, and productive conversations and you know so it is really of benefit to you the one of the challenges with empathy is that you need to start with, and this goes obviously to your book, um, the, uh, that you need to understand yourself first. And, and in so much of what we, what, where we have been in the last decades, hundreds of years, we mostly don't know that much about ourselves. And, and, you know, we never, we never really you know, fully understand ourselves, but, but we don't, and if, unless we understand ourselves quite a bit, it's very hard to really dig deep and understand somebody else because you 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 don't have a context for it. So that's where you know there there is a sort of step, a first step, um, which is why there's a there's a chapter in the book. It sort of says you know empathy starts with you, and then but it's about them. So sort of you know what are your needs? How do you understand yourself? How do you work? You know what do you want in life? Because when you sort of have more clarity about those elements of yourself, you can then better understand who each of your colleagues and team members or people you're working with along the supply chain. You know, you can better understand them and then work with them more effectively. Yeah, I like to say it's uh, about getting yourself out of the way to understand mm. the others. Uh, because yep. until you've figured out your own wobbles and foibles and issues, they tend to be a filter, if not a hill <laughs> to get over before yeah. you're even seeing clearly with clarity, like you say, the others. Yeah. So you, you, um, you talk a lot about the, the human centric approach. Mm -hmm. So give us an, uh, an idea of, I, I, I like the way, in fact, you use the word messy a lot. Um, <laughs> tell us, tell us about the human centric approach. Well, 
the way I see it, we have been we have we've been working with certain rules um, according to certain rules, which were established a long time ago. Um, you know, in fact, the forty-hour work week. Uh, you know, I, I went into this whole area because this is sort of my my second career, which I started about ten years ago, um, thinking that this whole forty-hour work week was was to do with the machines they had to be turned on in the morning, turned off. The, it's nothing to do with that. There was a guy, a, a Welsh utopian called Robert Owen in 1817, who came up with the best marketing slogan ever, right? one of the early ones, which was eight hours of leisure, eight hours, eight hours of labor, eight hours of leisure, and eight hours of, of sleep. And, and that was it. And that was the 40 hours. And it, you know, it, it sort of sped around the world like wildfire, um, wasn't actually made into law in, in the US until in 1938, not quite sure about the UK. Totally random. So, you know, why, why be beholden to, to 40 hours a week? It's, it doesn't, it was better than, than working 16 hours a day, six days a week. So, you know, that was the big change then. So what we need to do is really change the rules of engagement. And that's, that's what this is sort of starts with is that we, we, those were rules that, that were relevant at the time and they were better than what had been there before. And now it's time to think about new rules. And when I look at the, the, the sort of technology-driven future of work, this new environment, environment that has arrived and, and catalyzed, it's been coming for a while, but it's been catalyzed sort of to come in a, in a, in a rush with a, uh, with a pandemic, that that technology-driven world also has a, has a very important human-centric counterbalance. And so, which is like us, the people who are using the machines and, and using these very sophisticated, um, much more intuitive machines and use them as tools rather than being, you know, our lives being run in ways to make the machines work as best possible. They now can really help us sort out how we are going to uh, utilize these, you know, fantastic, these powerful mobile untethered um, devices to, 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 to affect our business and, and uh, you know, produce the services, the products and services that we need. So the human-centric approach is really taking that, that sort of the other side of, you know, where we are this, um, and really looking at it in terms of, first of all, the customer journey, but then also the, the employee journey. So focusing everybody in an organization on the customer from the very moment that you sort of identify them or trying to attract them, understand who they are, because we now do recognize the, the customers as, as an individual and we're trying to, to attract and, and convert them individually. We can you know, see them in the streets and kind of, oh, look, that, that's one of our people. That's who we want. Um, so that 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 takes a lot rather than sort of you know spending out sending out these really you know broad-based bland messages. Um, and then all along that that journey. So it really is a way to help focus an organization um, because otherwise they may be going off, you know, having slightly different interpretations of of who the customer is, and that really doesn't help really be effective in the business. But then when you know it's a, I look at it as sort of a, a, a yin-yang in terms of a, a mutually reinforcing um circle where in order to really be empathetic and understand your customer, you need to have the same consistent type of approach and understanding of employees um, rather than having sort of, you know, externally one approach and mindset and then completely different for employees. Because I think that kind of inconsistency doesn't really work in the marketplace now, nor does it actually work on a human, ba on a human basis. So really then looking at the employee journey and how you're attracting them and, and how you're bringing people into the organization and how you're helping engage them. And I think that's even more important now when we have much more complicated problems to deal with. We're working in a very unpredictable environment, working at a much, much faster pace. So how do we help and support um, and engage our employees? Um, and all of that becomes the sort of human-centric system. Beautiful. Well, as you can imagine, I love that. As well, we <laughs> have a little bit of airtime on it. Oh, last uh, question, Sophie, and you talk about it in your book. Um, empathy works, measuring empathy. And uh, you had Norm DeGrev from CVS who blurbed your book, a lovely man, I've had him on my show and, and uh, we've talked about that. When you, when you talk about empathy uh, being a critical corporate value mindset and skill, 
at some level, you need to benchmark yourself. At some level, you do need to evaluate people against those criteria if you go so far as to establish it as a value. So you, you talked about HubSpot and different companies. What, where do you end up on this idea of measuring empathy? Um, as I mentioned, I mean, HubSpot is, is interesting. Their, their culture is hot. H-E-A-R-T, and I'm not sure I'm going to remember what all of those stand for, but E um, is empathy. And they um, uh, equate, or empathy is very, very closely connected to inclusion because it's about understanding um, and, uh, you know, other people. And so they measure inclusion um, frequently and, and equate that with empathy. So that's the, their way of tracking empathy. Um, there are a few ways really to measure it directly. There are um, tests, in fact, which, which originated uh, from the study of autism, a lot of research into autism, uh, because that's one of the things that, that autistic um, uh, children in particular have challenges with in terms of sort of recognizing the emotion in, in others and reading the emotion. So there are ones in terms of reading eyes and your ability to, to understand the, the, and recognize the emotion that people are feeling. There's also even yawning. So yawning is one of the things that is deemed as being something that kind of measures how connected I am to you when I hear or see you yawning. Um, sort of interesting. I never thought about that, but that's actually a, a read of of if somebody yawns very quickly after somebody else, that's seen. They're sort of seen as being somebody who's more empathic. So, just a quick uh, anecdote yeah. in order to you know snip in. Oh, let's uh, have all our cameras on our phone, on our on our phones and, and computers, calculating how many times we're yawning, and if we see and you know with colleagues that are sitting beside each other <laughs> in an open space. Oh, look! There's a yawn catch. Oh God, that's a good one. There's a twofer, or there's a threefer. Oh my God. Oh, we're on. We're really on empathy empathic drugs today. Well, amazingly, uh, there is some there is some great technology that's actually particularly for people who aren't necessarily as good at recognizing emotions, because when you, when you um, are trying to do that feel part of it and trying to tap into somebody's emotion, you really do need to, to look at what you think their emotion is and then, and, and sort of, and then check, you know, ask someone like, Oh, you know, how are you feeling? Just to, to make sure that you have got it right. Cause you, you could be off base, but there is technology now that is, that is really well tuned for reading emotions and checking, okay, is it the eye muscles plus the, 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 the mouth muscles? Cause that looks more like a smile than a, than a this. Um, so there, there are technology enhancements that can help people um, in, in terms of just, you know, sort of recognizing what's going on. So, so technology can be helpful um, with empathy, uh, but measuring it. So, there, so otherwise there are more indirect ways which are it can be to do with outcomes it can be to do with um i just tried this really interesting new uh video call uh application um which called headroom and which does a sort of simultaneous uh trans transcription of the meeting um it records the video but it also does something which uh, another company, which I mentioned in the book, which is Riff Analytics. It measures the who is speaking more and shows the dynamics, the the dominance of conversation within the within the the, the group. I mean, obviously here it's just two people, but so it would just be showing uh, who is speaking more um, and giving a read of that because then that can be interpreted in different ways. Riff Analytics actually can kind of because how. 50% of how people feel after a meeting is based on how much airtime people get. That's from, from the behavioral science. So it's very, when you're trying to, to track um, how, if, if people are not being empathic and maybe speaking too much or not sort of trying to draw somebody else out who hasn't said a word, you know, those are the things that you can use some of these new tools with um, in, and, and be able to, to track some of the, uh, the, the, the sort of empathetic out, outcomes or, or empathetic uh, the, the levels during, during a meeting, which I think are very important as we try and optimize meetings. So there are, there are lots of indirect, indirect ways, um, but empathy is actually still pretty early on in terms of us understanding it. 
Um, and I think there are going to be many more ways that we can, using um, technology in these type of a ways, when we're sort of recognizing how we're reaffirming um, each other and, and oh, yeah, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, those type of things when I'm, it shows that I'm listening, it, it gives you more information about how this interaction is going and, and shows you that I value what you're saying. You know, those are the type of things that can actually help track uh, and, and measure how empathetic interaction is, but we're, we're, it's still early days. Whoa. Well, you made me think a lot of things there. So <laughs> okay. uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, talking about your new book, MP3 Works. It's lovely to chat and hang out with you again, Sophie, even though we may be miles apart. Um, how can people find out about the Sophie Wade and track you, follow you down, get your book, which comes came out May 3, you know, May 3 in the United States and May 24 in the UK or Europe in general? Um, so there's information at sophiewade.com and, uh, you can follow me on a Sophie Wade, um, at Twitter, because I am always sharing interesting, useful articles, uh, about, about all to do with the topic. There's the whole point of, of this book is really to try and help people navigate the way forward and try and have a framework for dealing with the future of work as we're emerging from the pandem pandemic and, and there's, there's a lot of turmoil, a lot of, a lot of messiness, as you picked up on, which is one of my favorite words. I think we're, we're entering a, an extraordinarily messy period, which I think is going to be you know, very difficult, but at least we're all in it together. And as we go through this messy period, I think uh, really being able to have a framework that's useful. So that's that's sort of the, the, the objective of the book. So follow me on Twitter, lots of useful articles there. You can find the book at sophieway.com or empathyworks.info. And um, I look forward to please pre-order it. And I also have, uh, I will be doing some, you know, seminars and, and webinars about empathy um, <clears throat> in order to, to sort of help this learning to how it works. And, and it, within the book, there are lots of empathy habits to really help people uh, learn, as, as you were saying, Mentor, learn the different ways that uh, you can sort of practice and integrate empathy in all the different ways in your in your organization. Um, because it's just like taking small steps and making the, you know, different interactions better and, and building up relations bit by bit. Those are all the different things and the steps that people can take very easily. Um, so I try to make it very, very practical um, in the book as well. Thanks so much. Beautiful. For and for the audience who's been listening, thank you very much. Great <laughs> pleasure. Thank you. Hey. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show, would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Minterdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on mintodile.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
as revenge is and struggle with deceit. Live for the challenge so life's not incomplete. What's wrong with challenge? I know soon we all die. I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger to feel free. Trust in my reason and let me show you why. I'm a convinced man practicing my lines. I'm a convinced man hearing these guns. Finds a convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man, fit to the test. I'm a convinced man. I'm ready for an arrest. I'm a convinced man in the arms of a woman. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.